How are we doing? So last week we were out of town and we went to a church uh, in the town we were in and it was such a blessing. Like, I'm reminded of the psalmist who said 3,000 years ago, I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. Here, I love being here tons, but whenever we travel or go somewhere, it's so just refreshing to be with God's people, to be reminded of what really matters. Like, I miss it. I need the reminder because for six days, I'm plastered with all this other stuff and it's insanity. It's so good to come and to be reminded. Jesus today. Remind us, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. May we have hearts that overflow with gratitude, that we have had our sins forgiven, that we have been made citizens of a kingdom that is eternal, that we are now your family. So would you speak to us? Through the gospel of Mark, we pray. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So I don't know if you saw this. This came out about a week ago. But new study reveals eating a hot dog shortens your life by 36 minutes. A few of you are doomed. But in little letters underneath it says, while a peanut butter and jelly sandwich adds 33 minutes to your life. Yeah, a few of you will live forever. Myron will never die. I know that if you eat a hot dog and then a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it cancels itself out. So that's the perfect meal, right? There's always studies like that. They come out and they tell you, here's the new thing that's going to kill you, right? And you can read about them every single week. Some new thing, some new chemical, some new problem. This is going to kill you. This is dangerous. We're going to read in Mark about the most dangerous thing ever to humanity. There is nothing more dangerous than this. It is the killer in the universe. But in the midst of this, there's good news. Because Mark 3 is giving us a path from sinners, separated from God, alien from his goodness, his life, and his love, and his light, cast off failures. It's giving us a path to becoming part of the family of God, to becoming his sons and his daughters. So in the midst of this danger, there's this incredible hope. So let's jump in. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then he, this is Jesus, went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem 
were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatsoever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Whoop-dee. Controversial little text right here. So just to get the context, Jesus has cast out a demon, and there's this group of people, the Pharisees, they're the Bible refs with whistles and flags. They're saying that he did that by the power of Satan himself. That Jesus' good works and the good things he's doing are actually motivated by evil. So he's not actually doing things for good reasons. He's doing things for bad reasons. Have you ever done something from pure motives and had people question them and say you're doing them for bad motives? Ever happened to you? How does that make you feel? You want to bake them a pie, right? <laughs> Only if you can throw it in their face. That's what's happening to Jesus right here. He's doing good, and he's being accused of evil. And if you noticed, there are actually three views of Jesus in this little text. His family, verse 21, thinks he's a lunatic. He's out of his mind. What's wrong with him? He's nuts, right? The crowds, the Pharisees, the scribes, they think he's evil, that he's a liar. He's not doing this for good stuff. He's doing it because he's a liar and he's on the wrong team. And then verse 27, Jesus says, actually, I'm the Lord. Actually, I'm the Lord. That the gospels don't let you be neutral about Jesus. You're gonna make a decision about Jesus, who he is. So, Nowadays, we don't say he's the liar or he's a lunatic, but we will say this. Well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He's just a good teacher, right? That's the way we do it today. But look what Jesus actually says. He says that, verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying something crazy here. He's saying, I've come to plunder the house of Satan. 
The reason why I'm casting out demons is because I've actually already bound Satan, and now I can come in and I can plunder his goods. That's the context right here. No teacher says that. No teacher says, I'm, I've come to bind Satan and plunder his house. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. I am the Lord. So when you look at our world with all of its problems, its wars and its famines, its killings, its injustice, its malice, its disease, its anger, its er all that, starvation and famine and pestilence, Jesus is saying, I am coming to take that all on and to bind it all up and plunder this house. What teacher would ever say that? No one. Jesus is making a statement about himself. I'm the binder. I'm the plunderer. I'm the God warrior. I'm the same God that took on Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. I'm that one. I'm the skull crusher of Genesis 3.15 that will crush the head of the serpent and free humans from the disease that has been destroying them for three, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. I'm the one that's able to do that. It's me. I'm the Lord. Brilliant. And then he adds, verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatsoever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Ever heard of that? Kind of a big topic. I've been in 15 years at Edgewater. I have had 30 conversations with people that are afraid that they have committed this sin right here. And they're weeping, and they're heartbroken, and they're worried, and they feel like they are damned to hell for eternity. Like, it's a big deal. And it's usually over some way that they have failed their own vision of what it means to be a Christian. And so that's why they feel like, I'm out. Let's look at this for a second. Because we skip off into the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus says something, first of all, that's unbelievable. It should shock us. He says, all sins will be forgiven. All sins. Did you know at this time, 2,000 years ago, all sins were not forgiven? Read the Old Testament. There were sins that the Old Testament said, yeah, you can't be forgiven of that. If you blaspheme God, you could not be forgiven of that. There's actually a list in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Leviticus, which means you probably did not read it. Because Leviticus is where everyone stops reading through the Bible. They're like, oh, goodness, let's go to Psalms, right? But in Leviticus, it has this list of sins that are unforgivable. It literally calls them high-handed sins. I love that. It's a sin where God is saying, hey, don't do that. What do you do? High hand him. Nah, I'm doing it, right? It's, hey, wet paint, don't touch. What do you do? You touch it. It's your kids when they're eating something they should not be eating. And you look at your kid and you say, don't you dare take another bite or so help me God. 
And what do your kids do? If they're my kids, they say, yes, father. And they put it down. A high-handed sin is you know exactly what you should not do and you still do it. And the Old Testament said, yeah, there's no forgiveness for you. So this is a radical statement. We've lost the radicalness of it. When Jesus says this to this community, they'd be like, really? All sins can be forgiven? Wow. But it's the word forgiveness that's even better. It's a word that means to leave or to depart from. It has the connotation of like you loading up your pickup full of all kinds of junk, heading over to the Merlin dump, putting all that stuff in the dump and leaving. Can you come back the next day and get it back? Mm-mm, it's gone. You're never getting it back. It's buried, it's gone, it's destroyed, right? That's this idea right here. You and I don't even have this capability when it comes to forgiveness because we still remember it. I'll give you an example. So let's suppose you and your spouse have a heated discussion. I know this is church, so no one has those kind of discussions. So hypothetically, you and your spouse have a heated discussion and you're in the middle of this, middle of this heated discussion and you say something you should not say, you hit below the belt. You ever done that? It just comes out, you don't even know why you did it, right? You and your wife are arguing away, and you just say, well, I don't like your mom. Whoop-dee! You're in trouble, right? And you're like, oh, man, why'd that come out? So you say, man, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I, I do like your, wife, your mom, and it's just, you know, sometimes she does annoy me, but I'm sorry I said that, right? So you do that, and your wife says, okay, I forgive you. Two years later, you have another heated discussion, in the middle of that heated discussion, your wife looks at you and goes, yeah, but you don't like my mom. What just happened there? Huh? It wasn't really forgiven. It wasn't this word, which means to leave, which means to depart, because it's brought back up. Jesus says, when I forgive, when I forgive, it's like taking stuff to the dump. It's gone. You can never recover it. It's totally taken care of, forgotten. This is the good news. We fear all kinds of things. We can fear eating hot dogs now, like, well, I'm never eating a hot dog again. We can fear disease and chemicals and people and crime and socialism and nuclear weapons and EMP and terrorism, right? There's all this stuff that we can be afraid of. But do you know the most dangerous thing in the universe? It's one thing. It's the wrath of God. There's nothing more dangerous to the human soul than the wrath of God period. Hard stop. Jesus says, Jesus says, I can take care of that. And do you know why God hates sin so much? Because it hurts his creation. It hurts his kids. It destroys. That's why God hates it so much. That's why his wrath is set against it. When Jesus says, I'll be the dump. I'll take it all. I'll deal with it all. It'll all be gone. That's what Jesus is saying. All sins can be forgiven. Something radically different from the Old Testament. I can do it. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is the best verse. And such were some of you. That list is sitting here right now. That list is standing here right now. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified, just as if you'd never sinned, taken to the dump and forgotten. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's the good news. All your sins taken to the dump, gone, except one. Except one, verse 29. Whosoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying, context, he has an unclean spirit. This is the singular sin that cannot be forgiven. Now, context again. And Mark actually adds in the context because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So the Pharisees, the Bible raps, were saying that the work of Jesus was done by the power of Satan. It was not done by the power of God. He's not God come in the flesh. He's not the Lord. He's not the skull crusher. That's not who he is. He's a deceiver. So it's the work of Jesus Christ that was called into question. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit has that context. It's saying something about the work of the Holy Spirit. So you have to ask yourself, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? Is it to give you and me goosebumps? Is it to make us roll around on the ground in holy laughter? Is it when we haven't studied for our Spanish test, that we can pray for the gift of tongues, the languages of Spanish? Well, the Bible tells us what the work of the Holy Spirit is. It's John chapter 16. I'll read this. I, I shrunk it a bit. You can read it. Brilliant. When he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Right? This is what the Holy Spirit does. He, number one, convicts of sin. Number two, Righteousness, number three, judgment, and number four, truth. So I'll paraphrase and summarize that. Here's what God's Spirit does. His Spirit says to you and me, you're a sinner. You were not born right the first time. A serpent grabbed the hold of your heart, and he's poisoning it. You have fallen short of the glory of God, number one. Number two, you need a righteousness that's better than yourself. You will never be righteous enough. You need a bigger righteousness than what you can get. Judgment. One day you'll stand and give an account of how you lived your life. 
and in the truth, the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the one. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is saying no to the work of the Holy Spirit. That God's Spirit, here's what it, the Bible says over and over. God's Spirit is the mechanism by which God woos you and me to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. He's the one that says, Jesus is the Genesis 3.15 warrior God who will crush evil. Jesus is the Genesis 12 promise to bless all the families of the earth. Jesus is the first Sam, second Samuel chapter seven king who rightfully rules this universe. Jesus is the suffering servant of the songs of Isaiah, on and on and on. He is the one. He's the one that can plunder. He's the one that can bind. Jesus is the one. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you consistently say, nah, nope, then eventually you've said no enough. And eventually you have hindered his work in your life. And eventually, it stops, and you're eternally damned. That there is no one else coming. Jesus is the promised one. There is no other Savior coming. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's the one. And if you say no to God's Spirit, there is no one else. That if you look at right before this section, Jesus has just selected 12 apostles how many tribes were there? 12 tribes. That Israel was supposed to be this, this new thing that God demonstrated through. So Jesus is saying, I'm creating a new nation. And this new nation, everyone's invited to receive the forgiveness of sins by faith in me. But if you reject the new nation that anyone can come into, regardless of personality, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of your sinful past, regardless of that, if you reject that, then you're out. There is no other nation. This is it, period. I am the only way back to the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is saying, nah, I don't want it. Okay. But if you do receive it, here's the good news. You become his family. Look at verse 31. And by the way, <clears throat> this is something that Mark does all the time. It's called a Markian sandwich. So verses 20, peanut butter and jelly will help you live longer. Verses 20 and 21, his family, he comes home. His family's like, Jesus is nuts. But then there's this crazy little section that's about blasphemy of the spirit and right and then we're right back to his family again. So Mark does this all the time. If you're reading the Gospel of Mark, when you see these Markian sandwiches, the middle is what is the key. It's the highlights, how Mark is highlighting. This is really, really important. Now we'll get back to the story again. So back to the story, the family. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they were sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister 
and mother. Jesus says, when you put your faith in me, when you listen to the wooing of my spirit, your sins are forgiven and you become my family. Now we in America have lost what family means, what it has meant for generations, right? Now family is, hey, they help you for the first 18 years and then you're out. Unless you need a loan, then you're coming back. That's kind of it, right? You're on your own, you do your own thing. That is not historically what families did. Families were your definition. It was your tribe and your family that meant everything, right? The business was the dad had a business and what would happen to his sons? They would step into that business. You would work together as a family. Just that's what generations and generations of cultures did. So Evans Engineering become Evan and Sons Engineering. Your last name used to mean something, right? A baker was someone that baked food, right? Or baked bread, that were a baker. A miller was a millwright who fixed machinery and worked on machinery. A smith was a blacksmith who banged out metal and made stuff out of metal, right? Heverly is German for talker, so that's what we do. Your family was everything. Now, family identity has been replaced with two things. What's more important now than family in America is your political stance. And now the state has replaced the family. Family used to take care of their own. You'd take care of grandpa and grandma, take care of kids. Uncle had a problem, the family would wrap around. Now it's the st- you go to the state, the state will take care of those things. That's a whole other message. But that didn't happen back then. Family was everything. You got your identity. You got your care. You got your meaning. You got your purpose. It was all wrapped up in family. And Jesus says, Jesus says, I got a new family. Because what was his current family doing to him right then? They wanted to lock him up in the nut house. Right? He was being rejected by everything. Everything that marked you in that day. Identity purpose, value, belonging. They were rejecting him. He's he's nuts, right? So Jesus is saying, if your family rejects you, and family can reject you, can it not? You don't do what your dad wanted you to do, and you're rejected. You marry the wrong person, and you're rejected. You fail your family in some way that they can't take it to the dump. Instead, they leave it in the truck, and every time they want to put you in your place, they pull it out and they beat you with it. Jesus says, I know what that's like. It's happened to me right now. But if you come to me, I will forgive your sins and you'll become a my, part of my family unconditionally and eternally. You're my family. How amazing is that? And then he says, there will be one proof though, one mark that you're my family. He says, you will do the will of the Father. So how do you do God's will? What does it mean to be a people that are doing the will of God, the proof that we're part of his family? I'll give you two verses for this. First one, Jesus is asked this direct question. It's John chapter six. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Right? What's God's will for us? Jesus answered them. 
This is singular. Circle that word. This is singular, the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. What's God's will? What's the work of God's spirit? Bringing us to a faith in Jesus as king, as savior, as Lord, as God in the flesh. Right? But this word believe, right? We believe, right? Whatever. I believe this guy. I believe that guy. The believe in the Bible is a whole different kind of belief. It literally means to rest in, to put your weight on it. It's not facts that you kind of keep in your head. It's much deeper than that. It's stronger than that. It's more powerful than that. It'd be like this. So I'll give you my best example. I went to school at OSU, great engineering program, terrible football program, but that's another story. And when I was there, we had this gear shipped to us from this company called Metolius, and they make rock climbing gear. And we had to like calculate how strong it was, and then we actually tested how strong it was. Well, rock climbing gear is unreal. You can pick up a full-size truck with it. Like, it's so strong, right? So I had all these facts and these figures, and we had tested it, and we knew this. But one of my buddies, his name is Mike Knapp, invited me to go rock climbing with him on Smith Rock. And I'd never done that before. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So we go to Smith Rock, and we do this two-pitch ascent where you go up, and then you pull up all your gear, and then you go up again. And so we were about 200 feet up, Smith Rock, standing on this 18-inch ledge, and I was like, wow, this is so awesome. This is amazing. I look over at Mike Knapp, who is an avid rock climber, and he had this really concerned look on his face. I said, Mike, what's wrong? He said, well, um, we need another rope. I said, Mike, what does that mean? (laughs) You need another rope. What are you talking about? He's like, well, um, for a two-pitch ascent, I need another rope to get down. I said, Mike, what does that mean? We need another rope to get down. We're 200 feet up off the ground. He said, well, um, it means you can't repel yourself down because you need a lot of rope. You need one that goes all the way up and all the way back down, right, to repel yourself down. I said, Mike, what does that mean that you don't have enough rope to repel yourself down? He said, Matt, it means this. I have to let you down. I said, Mike, what does that mean you have to let me down? He said, you have to turn around backwards and then I'll tie off to you and then you have to just jump out and I'll start letting you down. I said, no, I choose life. (laughs) We're engineers, find a different solution. Then this is what we do, right? So about four hours later, there I am face to face with Mike and I'm like, bro, really? This is it? He's like, yes. I said, do you have me? I have you. I said, do you have me? He's like, Matt. We tested this gear. You know how it works. I said, I don't care. Do you have me? And then I had to jump. That's putting your faith. That's belief. That's okay. I got some facts, but now I'm going to rest in it. I'm going to rest in it. That Jesus is actually what's most important. That his kingdom is what's important. It's more important than this world, than America, than some political stance. It's more important than my house or my job that it's the most important thing. And then I'm resting in that truth, period. I'm putting my entire weight on it. I'm putting my entire weight that all my sins have been forgiven. And I'm not listening to the lies of the enemy anymore that wants to pull stuff out of the dump and beat me with it. I'm not listening to those anymore. 
I'm not listening to the lies of the enemy that wants to say, I'm a terrible Christian. If people only knew it, I would no longer be part of the family of God. No, that's not why I'm the family of God. I'm in the family of God because I trusted in Jesus, period. That's what this means, right? It's, it's, what do you mean? I won't be free from lust or porn or drugs or whatever it is. No way. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I live, Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the power of the Son of God who loves me and died for me. That's what it means. You rest in it. You put your weight into it. That's belief. That's the will of God. And there's a second one. It's Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, it's 11 chapters of theology. Just facts, 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 facts. This is the first time Paul in that book says, do something with this. With all this information that you've been given, he says, I appeal. Literally, I'm begging you, therefore, based on all this, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to know God's will? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Here's what he's saying. And God's will for each of us is going to be different. For some, it's get married, work hard, raise godly babies. For others, it's go on the mission field. How cool is that? For others, it's going to be, hey, start a business or start something in Grant's Pass or start a ministry. It's different for every single one of us. For some, it might be going to politics, right? The Old Testament has kings and priests and prophets. I think each one of us has one of those spheres that we are supposed to be involved in actively, right? So that's God's will. So how do you figure out what God's will is? Paul just says, it's real simple. Be all in. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Be all in. Don't play hokey pokey with the Lord. Don't be double-minded, James chapter one. Same thing. It's I'm all in. I'm not a Sunday saint and a Saturday ain't. I'm not doing that. I'm not playing those games with God, right? Jesus did not die for me, did not bleed out so I could come on a Sunday morning and be entertained for 30 minutes or 40 minutes or 50 minutes, whatever it happens to be, right? That, no way. He wants a life that's transformed. That's what he says. So Dion Media put it like this. He said, the world has yet to see a man or woman, what God can do with a man or woman wholly given to God. Someone that actually does, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm all in. I'm all in. 100%. And Paul is begging Be all in with your family and your finances and your career and your mind and your goal. Be all in. That's what he's begging us for. And when you do, you begin to prove what God's perfect will for your life is. And you get transformed. You become a different kind of person. You are fundamentally transformed. Doesn't mean you won't struggle. Doesn't mean you won't have issues. You know, Romans continues to say, hey, there's going to be a fight, no doubt. Romans 7, Romans 8. But man, 
Your life is transformed. You become different. You prove his perfect will. And it won't be weird for you. It won't be, all right, you go to Africa and eat bugs now. Unless you want to go to Africa and eat bugs, then, hey, that's God's will for you. Perfect. It's going to fit you like a glove. It reminds me of that great movie, Chariots of Fire. If you don't know that movie, watch it. Eric Liddell, Christian, loves Jesus, and he is asked by people, why aren't you a missionary in China? Why are you running in the Olympics? You should be a missionary in China. And this was his response. He said, because God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When you're proving God's will, that's what happens to you. God made me this way. And when I'm doing it, I feel his pleasure like in no other way. And Eric Liddell's life was transformed, won multiple gold medals, went on to be a missionary in China. Brilliant, brilliant life because he was wholly given to God. And he proved what God's perfect will was for his life. You, me, because of King Jesus, because of the forgiveness of sins, you have a brand new family. It's called the family of God. And even if your family rejects you, like what was happening in Jesus right here, here's what he says. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I won't do that. You're always gonna be my brothers and sisters. This is the best news ever. And the most dangerous thing in the world, the wrath of God, gone, gone. That's why every Sunday we come to the table. Because when we come to the table, we are being reminded and we're reminding ourselves, right, I get to come to the table. I get to be a brother. I get to be a sister of King Jesus. I get to renew my covenant to him that I am all in 100% a living sacrifice given over to my king. And so Jesus today, I pray as we hold in our hands the bread, your brokenness. I, like Paul, would say, I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. That we were beggars and we found bread. We were sick and we found the physician. We were broken and we've been healed. We have become your sons and daughters. And I pray as we eat today that we be a people that put our weight into that truth that you're the king and your kingdom will never pass we are citizens of that kingdom and would you help us to act like it today let's eat together
we hold the cup because we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified just as if we'd never sinned at all because of your power. You do not look at us in our failings or in our weaknesses. You look at us in our finished perfection. May we drink strength. May we drink transformation, metamorphosis today. May minds be renewed by the truth of the gospel. May each of us know When we put our faith in you, we became your sons and your daughters. We are family, and you'll take care of us. Let's drink together. Amen. So we'll sing one more song. And you can be dismissed, but if you want, there'll be people up here that would love to pray for you. Nothing too big, nothing too small. Maybe your prayer request wasn't prayed for this morning. Come up here. Be prayed for. We offer baptism. New Testament has a refrain, repent and be baptized. Maybe you have put your faith in Jesus, but it's been a little hokey pokey. And today you're saying, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to be a living sacrifice. Maybe today's your day. Be baptized. Publicly identify as a son, a daughter of King Jesus. What a brilliant day to do it. Would you stand for one final song?